LA is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. It's just always been a sunny place for shady people. Before they get in your business, be in charge of your business. Own it cause it's your business, your business, business. Handle all of your business, value all of your business. You say you're minding your business, my business. Coming up today on the show, we have Billy Corbin, and you might know him from the Dan Lebatar show with Stu Gods. He talks about his political opinions, amongst other things. But other of us may know him from all the hit documentaries that he's put out, from 537 Votes to The U, of course, Cocaine Cowboys. He talks about his city, Miami, and he also talks about empowering minority filmmakers. We have a lot of other things we talk about. We talk football. Listen, I asked the family, what's better, the NFL playoffs or the NBA playoffs? We also talk about generational curses. Are they real? Can you break them? So much to talk about this week. Had a great week of sports. It was Snooker Booker's birthday, January 23rd. It's lit. Let's go. What up, what up, what up, good people? So listen, NFL, I, I saw some tweets going out that said NFL playoffs are better than the NBA playoffs. I don't know if I would take it that far, Adina, but I think that the NFL playoffs are giving the NBA playoffs a run for their money because this weekend, as we were all locked to our TVs, we saw some unreal things happen, like 25 points being scored in two minutes in a football game. That's unheard of, but we saw Patrick Mahomes go and do what he does, and so I don't know. I love football. First, let me just say we had to be a mom, and I feel bad about it, but I... I have to just tell the truth. Junior had a game on Sunday at 3 o'clock, the exact time that the NFL games were starting. So what did I do? Yes, I was checking the games and watching the games at his game, but my baby got a dub. Then we went home and watched it. Patrick Mahomes scored in 13 seconds. I saw Monica McNutt challenge people to see what they could do in 13 seconds and let her know because he went down and got a whole score but i digress we got a dope show coming up today cocaine is on the menu i mean cocaine cowboys shouts to my guy i already told y'all to binge watch cocaine cowboys so if you didn't shame on you because we have a dope conversation coming up we're going to talk about generational trauma generational curses generational everything over here but anyways let's have some fun today let's get it So, Cole, you got a football family. I know this. I don't know if anybody has seen what we saw this weekend happen, even just to the walk-off field goals to the wizardy. What is that word? Wizardry. I don't know. Wizardry. Sorcery. Sorcery. To the sorcery (laughs) that was quarterbacks this weekend. I mean, I don't know if I've seen quarterbacks play as well as they played. It was a battle between Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, but it wasn't just them. We saw Brady go down. We saw Aaron Rodgers go down. And when we saw Aaron Rodgers go down, we saw the internet turn up. It was really wild. (laughs) I knew, but I didn't know the level of disdain that the internet had for Aaron Rodgers. But (laughs) thoughts sound off like, what happened this weekend? I don't even watch football. And today I get my hand like, are we going to talk football? Because this was interesting. Okay. I don't even I don't even watch football like that, but I want to hear. 
<laughs> Let me tell you what's really funny about that whole Aaron Rodgers thing. I said, I thought Brady was going to be one of the most hated. But then when Aaron right. Rodgers came through, I was like, <laughs> really? I was kind of shocked by that, too. Because, you know, at one point, everybody loved him. And then everybody was like, yes, he went down mm-hmm. good. So, but I want to say this. My son said it best. Trill said it was a shootout. He said it was literally a shootout. <laughs> a and shootout. shootout. And, wow. and what was really funny about it is, is that my mother-in-law, she's in a little pool that she does every year with her friends. It's very friendly. You know, they get points <laughs> every week. And you want to talk about the amount of anger that she had coming from her because all the favorites lost. Ooh, all the favorites so lost. So, you know, usually. Did she lose some ducats? You know, <laughs> yeah, she actually went down to her pool a little bit because they do the whole season and at the end, oh, whoever man. has the most points. But, uh-huh. you know, she said this is usually the easiest time of the year because you basically go with the favorites. They usually yeah. win. It's no big deal. Boy, that was mm-hmm. crazy. That didn't happen. And I remember I called Will Snook's birthday was on happy NFL birthday. playoff day or, yeah. you know, happy belated birthday to my. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Happy belated birthday to my Snooka Booker on the ones and twos on here, okay? But I call Snook, or Snook calls me, I'm talking all casual, like, whoa, did you see that first game? And I'm like, yeah, are you watching that second one? You know, she didn't even know there was a second game, but to that point, this will be the first time since the 2009 season that neither Tom Brady nor Aaron Rodgers will be in the conference championship game. So Good. this is un heard of like wow. i'm talking about since 2009 when i graduated from yukon oh, wow. this is the wow. first time since i graduated that tom brady nor aaron Rodgers will be there so snook how did you feel about all those festivities on your birthday <laughs> you know i've always said sports is the best live entertainment it was the best day ever. I mean, I didn't even really want to go out to eat. I didn't even go out to eat. I After church, just sit back, ate a few wings, and watched some football till 10, 11 o'clock. It was the best That's day That's the way to be a dream. Yeah. I want my birthday to be like that. That's a perfect birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Best best day day I know Diddy was the happiest. Oh, yes. And I was just amazed. I know amazed. Diddy was the happiest man in the building. Oh, he was. He was. And I was just amazed at the skill level of those quarterbacks. I mean, it was really something to behold now i'm not a real big football fan i can pretty much tell what's going on you know at any given time but they really exhibited some high level fun to watch quarterback skills yes 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 and receiver i guess quarterback i have to give the receiver because they they did have to catch it they had, they had, to, had catch to catch it, it. so anyway <laughs> shouts to the receiver and shouts to obj because the life of an athlete you could be down this could be all one season you could be down bad or you could be up big what were you going to say babe i mean i was just in the room i was like folding clothes and whatever renee had the game on but she was in the living room and i just ended up watching it and so when it was 13 seconds left i was like oh man tom brady uh Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes not going to be in the Super Bowl. Oh, man. But then I looked down and then they scored. And I was like, wait, what happened? And I had to rewind Yeah, it. she I wants was... to come. No, she wants to come running back in the room. Talk about some what's <laughs> happening. We're trying to watch live. No, no. You no, can't rewind live. You can't rewind live. You literally, if you blinked, you missed it because it happened so fast. That, the yes. way, like, that whole play, whatever they did. I don't even understand football. But whatever they did, it just happened so fast that I couldn't even Buzz blink or, or turn around. Serena. Buzzer, and they went into buzzer. overtime. I was like, oh my buzzer. God, I can't want to talk about this because Cole is, is and her family yes. are crazy with football and I want to talk about this because this is crazy. And yes, we need a buzzer moment. <laughs> 
she just wants to be a part of the big moments. I'll call them the buzzer moments because that's what her and Snook keep saying. But she just wants to be a part of those moments. But I we only can't backtrack. When it's happening live, yep. we're screaming. We're going crazy. She's running into the room. What happened? I want to rewind stuff. Whoa. Ain't no rewinding live, baby. Look for the no, replay. no, no. Yeah. And you know what? I'll be having the both the TVs on on the same channel sometimes. And she's going to come in there and ask me, why do you have the game on both TVs? Well, one TV has a weird 10, 20 second delay. Yeah. So that's where she needs to come on in there and watch. Because we can't <laughs> rewind live TV on sports. She be wanting us to rewind. Well, let me tell you, Vance was happy. He was walking around with his chest out, his jersey on. Oh, I know. I told on his Mahomes jersey. His Mahomes jersey. <laughs> He gonna wear that thing every single day until they play again. Cause he was like, "Can I wear my jersey to school?" I'm like, "No, you have a uniform." He's like, "Well, can I just take it?" So I can show. No, you can't just take it. I need to stay in this house because if you come home without it, we're gonna have to tear the school up to get this jersey back. So he was right. on cloud nine when they won. All right, so I got one question to end this: Is the NFL playoffs better than the NBA playoffs, Cole? Mm. I don't know. Yes. Wow. Ooh. Sam, is the NFL Serena, is the NFL playoffs better than the NBA playoffs? I'm torn, but I will have to say yes. Yes, it is more interesting than the NBA playoffs. Wow, Booker. Is the NFL playoffs more entertaining than the NBA playoffs? No. <laughs> okay. And the reason I'm saying that is because football, you know, it's a pretty long game and you're sitting there watching it. You can actually do other things during downtime. There's a lot of dead air space in football as, as, a, as an observer. There's not a lot of action. She has a point there. They got the play clock that runs before the game clock. Listen, let me tell you something. One and done is always going to beat out seven spread. Wow. No, because the best man may not always no, win. No, I'm just saying, no, I'm talking about viewing the game. Viewing the game, not the number of games or whatever. I'm just talking about the viewing of the game is different. So the NBA games, from the time the whistle blows till the time the whistle blows at the end of the game, you can't be going and washing dishes and doing all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> you, have be, you have to be tuned into the screen to watch basketball. You got to be paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> looked away and did a few things and come back and and they still might not have moved on the field <laughs> did she say washing dishes <laughs> yeah i'm just saying no but you know what when i was watching it it was in the beginning when they were like chest bumping and stuff and it just makes you want to like scream and get excited but then like the game i do believe that the nba games are i i like i like she the, might have you know, a point there. y'all have better. a point well i, I will it. say it's kind of like me. When I got the Hulu subscription that had no ads, I couldn't get nothing done. When I get into binge watch mode, I don't get nothing done because there's no ad commercials. There's no breaks. I go straight <laughs> from episode one to episode two to episode three. And then it's on me to take a personal break when I'm ready to break from the show. And I'm usually not ready for that. So we've actually now gotten the ad version of Hulu Kind of a snook's point because it makes me a more responsible adult to do adulting <laughs> in between the show. It's like, oh, okay, a two-minute ad commercial break. Let's go to the bathroom or let's go get some snacks or let me answer this email. So I guess in that sense of the term, maybe I should watch football more because I'll get more done. Coming up next, I've talked a lot about Billy Corbin and all of his accolades, so I'm excited for the family to sit down and have a conversation with him.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm going to start at the beginning because you have your own media company, Rockin' Tour, producing doc films, miniseries, ESPN 30 for 30, The U. The list goes on. At the heart of all of this is Miami. So can you talk about what drew you to telling these kind of stories about Miami? And furthermore, when did you decide to pursue documentary filmmaking? Uh, well, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a Florida native and a lifelong Miamian. Growing up here, even as a child in the 1980s, you realized it was a special place uh, is the best way to, to put it it was it was unique yes. and extraordinary and dangerous and sexy and cool and you realize that there was a compelling cast of characters constantly around you a disproportionate amount of florida fuckery if you'll if you'll pardon the which is which is our genre actually that we work in and i think it's my experience of living in Miami my entire life and traveling and understanding how it works is best summed up by a saying I'm fond of that LA is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's just always, always uh... been a sunny place for shady people. And it has a transient population, a lack of institutional memory, you know, for a time, Prior to the 305 Till I Die generation, you ask someone in Miami where they're from, and they were from Philly, Baltimore, Chicago, New York, Venezuela, Cuba, the DR, Puerto Rico. No one was ever from Miami. People who had been here 50, 60, 70 years. It was rare to find a true Miami native. Not as much so now, thankfully. But everyone's nouveau riche. You know, it's a real fake it till you make it town. And so no one cares, like, what's your name? Who's your daddy? This isn't New England, right? This isn't like, you know, who's your legacy? Where like here, it's just like, as long as, you know, the checks are clearing and the, and the champagne's flowing, no one cares where your money ca- wow. comes from or who, what your last name is. And so there's a certain permissiveness about it. It's America's Casablanca. And one of my favorite pastimes, once I started drinking, which I didn't start drinking until I was 21, but I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a club guy. Um, I'm a dive bar guy. And so I'll go to like just the skeeziest bar in Miami, preferably dockside, you know, waterfront if I can find it. I just go up to the bar 
and I sit next to just the crustiest guy I can find. Like a guy who's like, just like, who's like a barnacle on a bar stool, right? He's just like, he's just like, he's just fucking stuck there, right? And, and, and you strike up a conversation. And invariably, this dude either just got out of federal prison, he's on his way to federal prison, he's the deposed third world dictator, oh you know, so like, you know, something it's, you know, it's, you never know, it's Papa Doc, it's Baby Doc, it's, you never, you like, you just, you know, you don't know, like, that's just like the vibe. And so we knew that it was a rich environment for characters and stories and seemingly an untapped resource, at least in the nonfiction world. There was a lot of great authors who have, you know, come out of Florida and South Florida in particular, both nonfiction and fiction. I mean, Scarface, Miami Vice, there's obviously been some fictional narrative content that's come out of here, but no one really as documentarians. And so that was like our whole brand was like going to be. And that's the thing, too, is that like you're trying to distinguish yourself in a crowded marketplace, especially when we got started where no YouTube, you know, no cell phone. Well, no cell phones like we have now. We're like the democratization of production and worldwide distribution is in the palm of your hand. There was like eight distributors and they were gatekeepers and if they didn't like your shit no one was ever going to see it <laughs> no one and so Crazy. so in order to penetrate that we didn't just want to be like three more schmucks peddling our wares in new york or la like everybody else does it we wanted to be the miami guys the miami storytellers so that people would at least be able to associate us with something and say like if they didn't know billy or they didn't know alfred or dave they knew oh yeah raconteur cocaine cowboys the you those are the miami guys and it took a while it was a gamble because no one was doing stuff like this in miami but it's paid off and here i am on your show <laughs> wow like, i'm big is... i'm blowing up i'm blowing up I'm blowing no up. listen you're <laughs> so billy talk about danger i mean you're filming oh, yeah. cocaine cowboys i mean i've heard a lot of stuff happens at the u I'm just saying i'm we're not gonna put <laughs> we're not gonna put their business out there but were you concerned ever even during filming the people you're around I mean, I don't know. You're stirring up some feelings there. <laughs> uh, you know, on, when, I, when we went into prison on the first documentary and interviewed the hitman, Jorge Riviayala, who's serving three life sentences here in Florida and wow. in state prison, that was a little dicey. Mm. Um, I never, <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> a little. Yeah. It's a secure facility, but it's still a prison. And we're still kind of like just walking around. We weren't in like secured areas and they were kind of like medium security prisons. So there was a certain kind of public high school quality <laughs> or, or even scarier, a public middle school quality uh, to the, to the vlog. I, I found middle school much scarier um, than high school. Like kids don't understand the consequences of their actions at that age. Yeah. Right, so it's yeah. a little, it's a little crazier. Um, but other than that, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about is old news. I think the really scary part of it is uh particularly in kings of miami the six-part miniseries on netflix um cocaine cowboys the kings of miami um the proffer so in episode two and we come back to this later in the series but in episode two uh willie falcone and salma glue to hire this attorney neil taylor mm. to help them kind of explore what it might look like if they cop a plea they plead guilty and make a deal and what does that look like he starts to visit them in MCC. I think they're down at the federal facility here awaiting trial. And they give him all of their secrets. And he prepares this document, 30 plus pages, soup to nuts of their entire multi-billion dollar cocaine trafficking operation, Crazy. how it worked, 
how it worked from Colombia, how the money worked in Panama, how the, you know, the, the laundering operations, all of the businesses in Miami that they invested in. They also had an entire section on their $1 million a month bribery budget. Oh my God. Uh, and, that, and that included officials all over the world. That wasn't just Miami, but a lot of it, it was Miami. Yeah. Long story even longer, they have a section that basically details in chapters all of the people that were involved knowingly involved and who profited from this illicit trade, be it directly from the drugs, be it from money laundering, from bribery. And the sections were divided private sector, public sector, law enforcement, which meant people in private businesses, probably a lot of real estate people, you know, who were helping them launder money because they had they started a construction business. They built homes and apartment buildings. The public sector, of course, that meant politicians and bureaucrats in local governments in Miami and also in central Florida, where they actually had bought a sheriff. Uh, they literally owned a sheriff. Lord. Um, and then last was law enforcement, which I think speaks for itself, which were police officers, prison guards. If they could infiltrate the feds, they would infiltrate the feds wherever their money could take them. And everybody had a price down here at that time. And the government did not accept that plea deal. And so all of the information that they had in this extraordinary document, they basically tossed it into the bay. And yes, what that meant was that most of those people, if not all of them, I'm sure fate caught up with some of them or karma along the way. We'll never know, though, because they never got exposed. They never got prosecuted. And some of those politicians could very well be in office today. And some of those law enforcement officers could still very much be on the streets or police chiefs by now. Yeah. Mm. I'm about to come through the screen. I'm like glued. I oh feel like I'm goodness. watching documentary all over you, again. I, I watched it and I was just simply amazed at like how easy it was for them just to slip through. Because like he said, one time they got pulled over and he's like, I got two kilos in the trunk. Take it. You're good. I'm good. He's like, yeah, sure. And just walk away. <laughs> so I don't know what I mean, that era, that's probably like 81, 82, 83. You're a cop. You're maybe maybe bringing in about 15 grand a year. And kilos at that time were probably going for at least fifty thousand yeah, dollars each. That's what they said. And that's before you broke it down. So here's a cop pulling you over for some nonsense, whatever it may. I broke tail taillight. You rolled through a stop sign. You're, you're going 45 and a 35. And guys like, here's $100,000. You're making 15 yeah, k yeah. I mean, come on. No brainer. <laughs> it's a no brainer. No brainer. It's crazy because, you know, in an interview, you had spoke about the business model of the film industry changing in the recent years, which actually led to the creation of the Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami. It's on Netflix right now. People just, you know, I, like check it out. All of this stuff is amazing. But you spoke about having extra material at that time that led to the continuation of the documentary in 2021. Yes. So can you talk about just the creative process and how you took that and cultivated it into material that's something new and exciting? Like, this is a big story, but each time, like, I'll watch, if you put out more, I'm watching more, okay? Oh, absolutely. Everything you put out, I'm absolutely. watching it, because this is such a fascinating story. Yes. Yeah, it's the fourth title, or the fourth release in the Cocaine Cowboys franchise. Uh, but it is, it was the first story we wanted to tell like way back in 05 and we just couldn't nail it down. The story I'm specifically of Los Muchachos, the boys, Willie and Sal, uh, Falcone and Magluda, um, who are these world champion offshore powerboat racers on TV, like legit professional sportsmen. And 
on TV when you're wanted. I want to add that. Like, you're actually wanted by the FBI and you are on TV. Do an interview. Do an interview. In Miami, we call that laying low. I mean, <laughs> hiding in plain sight, like you said in the documentary. Yeah, so ridiculous. So, but listen, it's hubris. And it was like, who was going to turn them in down here? They were known as like the Robin Hoods of the cocaine trade. Yeah. Like, they just like, Sal Magluta was like Don Corleone. Like, you come to his office and be like, Sal, it's my daughter's wedding. I can't afford it. Or my kid needs tuition money. Or I'm going to lose my house. And Sal would just hand you money and Nothing, you know, no, no, no IOU. Basically, it was, if someday he needed something, he'd call on you. And if he didn't, he didn't. The guy was making the billions of dollars. So it wasn't like 20 grand here, five grand there, 100 grand there meant anything at all to him. This is a guy who, when the government came through and seized his property, he had his girlfriend, Marilyn Bonacea, who we interview uh-huh. in the documentary, he had her go to the government seizure auction and buy it back for him with his money. Ah! <laughs> well, he's smart. He's, he, he, I'm telling you, I, when I watch the documentary and every turn I'm like, okay, this is it, they done. And then it's like another, <laughs> they came back. slip through another little crack in this and the other. I was just like, there's no way. I mean, the way that you told it, it's almost like this almost can't be real. It has to be fiction yes. because there's no way that this many people are involved in this type of thing and it just keeps going and episode going and going one. and going. Episode one, Nicole, they get arrested like three times in one episode. Yes. Like one, it's yes. like 49 yes. minutes they get arrested three times and like, and what's funny is like, because we did, you know, we did Cocaine Cowboys in 06 and then like Cocaine Cowboys 2 and then Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded and now Kings of Miami. And we wanted to make sure like, you know, a lot of the early stuff is redundant, right? You got these kids, they find a way they break into this trade, they blow up, they make lots of money, they're living large. Act one is very similar in all those stories. So we needed a way to make it fresh. And the way to make it fresh was just like, in the first hour of like six parts, we're going to like get all that shit out of the way to the point where you're like, well, what else can happen for the next five episodes, (laughs) right? And that's exactly what I was saying. (laughs) Like, and then like, by, and then, Episode two, you get arrested in like the first five minutes or whatever, 10 minutes. And you're like, okay, well, what the hell could possibly happen now for the next four and a half episodes? And then it just keeps going. And then episode three, they go to trial and you're like, well, they're done. We wanted to shoot it back in the early to mid zeros and we couldn't get access to anybody. This is the thing. This is the problem with like docs today also is that like people do shit so quick, right? Bishop Sycamore happens. The next thing you know, someone's announcing a documentary about it like two (laughs) weeks later. It's like stories need to ripen. Stories take time. You need some distance, some objectivity. You need people to kind of be able to have a moment to get a little less defensive maybe about it, to look back and say, wow, that was some crazy shit. And let me tell you what really happened and how I really felt at that time. And, you know, um, people always say, like, you're going to do a big three, you know, Miami Heat documentary. I'm like, I'd love to. Can we let LeBron like play out, like do his, live his life. He's he's the only one not retired, but like let him retire like plus 10 years, maybe like give it some time and some perspective and like, you know, but that, but here these wounds were fresh. Like Sal had just gone, finished his second trial in Oh two. And here we are in like Oh four, Oh five poking around and people just weren't ready. You know, it was too soon as they say. And so cooking Cowboys, the original doc was our plan B. It was our back out plan that we couldn't oh. do Willie and Sal. So we made Cooking Cowboys. We always thought, well, if anybody likes Cooking Cowboys, um, then we'll maybe get to make more of them. 
like, and then maybe we can revisit this Willie and Sal thing someday. And so incidentally, we went to Sundance Film Festival with our first documentary, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent in 2001. We were the youngest filmmakers in the history of that festival. The only ones from Miami okay. at the time. Congratulations. And so we thought we had it made. We went out, we started pitching. Remember I said those eight gatekeepers? We went out uh-huh. pitching Cocaine Cowboys. Nobody got it. Nobody liked it. Nobody wanted Crazy. to make it. What? Right. So we had to like just get friends, family, you know, like scrape some money together and start to make this thing. And needless to say, it caught on. It became kind of what they call a cult classic. And what that means, a cult classic is uh, that means everybody saw it and it didn't make any money. That's what that's a cult classic. <laughs> oh, um, I did not yeah. know that. Number, <laughs> number one in the bootleg market, uh, the flea market is what is what. And in strip club bathrooms, number one bootleg uh, in Miami. <laughs> Walmart parking lot. Where else? Yeah, like the bootleg guy. The Walmart bins, though, was lit. Okay. No, no, no. I mean the guy with the folder in the parking lot. He's talking about the guy who's walking around selling about socks. That that would like intercept you on the way, like, yo, you want movies? Do you want, you know, that guy. That guy. Number one. Number one DVD. uh, DVDR, I should say, in those days. But um, anyway, so we started to. I get a call. No idea. I got a MySpace message. Remember that shit? Oh, oh yeah, MySpace. Yeah, <laughs> I got a. That's that's talk about aging. Aging this story. I get a MySpace <laughs> message from Marilyn Bonacea, who was Sal Magluta's mistress. Well, actually, yes. his childhood sweetheart, and later his mistress, I like and her. later and later his paymaster, um, running around yep. helping him launder millions and millions of dollars in cash, paying people off all over town with literally bags of cash, like old yep. school, bag bag woman style, and so um. She hits me up and says, I've recently emerged from the witness protection program after many years. Other than my son, I have no idea where my family is. I don't even know if my parents are alive. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm interested in telling my story and talking. She knew I knew who she was. Um, wow. And then we, so that was the first interview that we did. And that was 12 years ago. How crazy what? that she just reached out to you, wanting to tell her story. It's not wow. crazy. My, Alfred Spellman, my producing partner, he always says, you know, in Florida, you get released from prison or witness protection, and your first call is to your mom, your second call is to rack and tour to oh, make gosh. a documentary about you. You know, <laughs> we are in, <laughs> we are in, we are in some meta postmodern times where people are wow. much more than ever aware of the value of of their story. Of their story. And, yeah. and to be fair, listen. A lot of people you get out of prison, that's all you have left. You may not have family who will talk to you anymore. You, you, I don't care how much money you buried in the Everglades, that shit's gone. Um, that right. money is either lost to the Gators or it's been spent and spent again by your family who went out with shovels yep. the day you went in and that's gone. Hereditary wealth does not usually last much beyond the second generation. Uh, I don't care if it's I don't care if it's legit or ill-gotten gains. Um, you're going you're going broke quick. But like to be fair, people want to get their story out there. She wanted to get her story out there. I think at the time, she also thought it would help her reconnect with her family. Like her parents would see her or hear about it and then maybe reconnect. And she did reconnect with them, not because of our project, but sheer force of will and effort. Uh, She finally did get to see her parents before they passed away. But she gave us an interview. And then what would happen was through the years, it kind of became our side hustle. We called it Los Muchachos. And whenever we get access to someone, we would like use a little money from a paying gig 
to kind of do this on spec as a labor of love. We'd say, okay, we can afford a day of production. Let's call, let's, you know, the U.S. attorneys or assistant U.S. attorneys who prosecuted the cases are willing to talk to us. Let's do it with them. The FBI agent will talk. Let's do it with them. One of their smugglers will talk. Let's do like, and we just started to accumulate a library, really, an archive of these extraordinary first-person accounts. But here's the thing. We had so much material. Like, so on the first sure. Cocaine Cowboys, we had like thousands of hours. And it was so long. It was four hours, the first cut. And, but the problem was there was no such thing as a documentary miniseries in 05, 06. So that mm, business model didn't okay. exist. Yeah, you were either doing a feature doc, a one-off, or you were like doing like American Greed, right? That would run for year, like hundreds of episodes. Or you were Ken Burns where you could do like a 10 hour thing, but he was unique. No one else was doing that, could do right. that. And so we did this feature doc and then we eventually did Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded, which was a wholesale re-edit of the original doc from scratch, two and a half hours long with 60% new material. So it wasn't just like a director's cut or an extended cut. It was like a brand new version of the same documentary. It's difficult to describe. It's like the same, but different. We were going to call that one Cocaine Cowboys, colon. We've got hours of this shit. Um, <laughs> so, and, and that's what I happened. like how you repurpose it. We did. No, listen, we used a whole carcass, you know, like, uh, but, you know, nothing went to waste there. But the point is, is that on Kings of Miami, there was just too much. There was no way to make this a two hour one off feature documentary and so what happened though was <laughs> we worked on it for so long accumulating these interviews and, and getting nailing down the access to people that the business model of a documentary miniseries was invented the, oh the, the, to, to Renee's so then point, you had a lane yeah to Renee's out. point the business evolved while we were working on this to the point where we like we had a product for it that had no home no lane and then all of a sudden we could bring the thing in for a landing. They paved the, wow. you know, Netflix and HBO, like really with the jinx and making a murderer. That was the one, two punch. I think that really yes. knocked, you know, kicked that door wide open. And so we could see the landing pad up ahead and, and we went in for a landing and Netflix was good enough to give us that time that we needed to tell the story. Um, Amazing and, story. And, and we did it. Scarface was released in 1983. Somebody write that off of the life of the cocaine cowboys. Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone wrote the screenplay. Oh. Uh, De Palma, of course, directed. Oliver Stone moved down to Miami. I think he was here for almost a year. He went to the Mutiny, the club oh, and yeah. disco and hotel uh -huh. that we profile. He was everywhere. Like the mountain lions, all that shit. People think like Scarface is very operatic and over the top and Scarface is a documentary yeah. um, wow. and, and they packed it in. It's like two and a half hours, but from the newscaster doing those editorials on TV, that was a real guy, Ralph Rennick. It was an actor playing him, but he watched that guy on TV, Ralph Rennick in Miami. He was like our anchor man, you know, our famous, you know, uh -huh. yeah. sort of like Ron Burgundy, Ron Burgundy <laughs> yeah. kind of character who broadcasts Ron down here like for 80 years, you know, like uh, they let white men do that, by the way. They could be on television for 80 years. That's the thing. Okay. No, nobody else is allowed to do that, to be on TV. To be on hey, TV hey, when you're- she was 83. She was, she was on TV till she was 80. Well, as she would tell you, she had some work done. So, you know, she was, you know. So she claimed yeah. it. <laughs> she claimed it. Yes. Um, but, but uh, no, I, I mean, everything, whether it was like, again, the mountain lions, when he went to the bank, you'll remember the scene with the duffel bags of money. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and the, the banker's like, listen, I got to charge you a VIG to deposit cash. It was a liability. They had no place to store 
all that cash, the Federal Reserve Bank, the one branch in Miami, had a cash surplus of more money than all of the other branches in the entire country combined. Oh, my so, gosh. So no one had any place what? to put it. So the banks were like, you want to give us cash? You pay us 2% because we don't want your <laughs> We have no place to store this shit. <laughs> we don't want um, That's crazy. The bank don't, don't the, want no more the money. The bank don't want no anybody. No more cash. Crazy. Deposit a check or something. But all of that, those were all facts. And Oliver Stone got that, came down here, immersed himself in that world. And he got it right. Uh, he, he, he absolutely he absolutely did. You talked about your business partner, Alfred. You have another business partner, David uh Sipton? Is Sipkin. it Sipkin? Yeah. Sipkin. Yeah. Sipkin. And you guys are building something, building empires, and it seems that it's all starting in Miami. And on this show, Montgomery and Company, we always talk about building generational wealth. Not the ones you can dig up, you know, the Everglades, <laughs> but big, building, some, building some generational wealth that we can pass on in generational inheritance. But what does that mean to you when you see what's going on and you see different communities build generational wealth. You don't really see minority communities do that. So I always ask people, what does generational wealth mean to you? Well, first of all, this isn't really me. This is an NFT. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that I am putting up for auction live on your show right now. Bomb, there you go. One of how many? <laughs> yes, no, I'm, I, I'm like this. Yes, uh, this token is like life, non fungible. Um, so I, uh, so <laughs> I will. Um, it seems like you know where the money's at, though. The crypto and the NFTs and stuff. Crypto cowboys. That's my new one. I'll tell you that. Oh, right. hey. Holy shit. It started here on Montgomery and Company. New, you heard it first. New, come on, yeah, we're at, we're. At tech hub now in miami haven't you heard <laughs> yeah first of all someone will have to explain to me the wisdom of having a headquarters or a centralized location for a decentralized currency um but but i'm but i'm sure it's just a coincidence that the new crypto hub of the world is also the money laundering capital of the americas miami interesting so, wow. yeah. interesting hmm, things that make you go um, yeah but uh no listen i and i will say this and and uh the thing i'm most proud of because at first listen there was no money in documentaries now it's a business you're right we're building a business we have a studio we're building a business we got like six projects next year. We're not like one project every two years anymore. It's That's extraordinary. Amazing. I don't know that I ever thought that that would happen. I thought maybe we dabble in this for a minute. It's indie filmmaking, you know, and it's fun because like limitations breed creativity. So it's constantly challenging because you never have the resources you need, but you still need to come up with, as I say, the job of a filmmaker is to find a good story and then don't fuck it up. You know, so you, <laughs> you find ways, you gotta, gotta find a story, good story, and then tell it well. And so you have to find ways constantly to serve the story. And I love that challenge. So I didn't know that this would be a business. What I thought the legacy would be, would not be, be able to leave anything behind for my kin folk, but the stories yeah. and providing yeah. a, right. a platform to amplify voices that ordinarily would not have that opportunity. And in my experience, I mean, listen, 30 for 30 to you does not get made without an executive who was running ESPN Films at the time, Keith Klingscales. He hired us. He co-signed for us. And I will tell you, everybody in that room looked at him to say, are you going to let these two little white boys tell this story? And he said, yes. When Steve Stout came to us and wanted us to make Adapt His Canning of America book into a, a rock doc miniseries for, for VH1, he just one of the guys that made Cocaine Cowboys in the U. To me, I've always felt like everybody has just, you know, people who wanted to tell good stories. We all have to help each other and lift each other up. Hey, that's a word up. right there. I have been without question lifted up by 
people of color in this industry who have given me a platform. Now, one of my New Year's resolutions this year, you know, not only do we tell stories like Dogfight, like the U, like Kings of Miami about the Cuban exile experience in Miami. Because I look at it as like, these are stories of Miamians. We're Miamians telling stories about other Miamians and subcultures within this community that we all cohabitate in. Uh, in a very tribal way, a very tense, <laughs> uh-huh. tense kind of way. But nonetheless, we do share this. You know, it's it's our Amy, not just my Amy or your Amy, right? And so, but but the point is that, like, one of my New Year's resolutions this year was that Raconteur, our company, was going to start producing a doc or docs plural that I was not directing, and that oh, we were okay. going to start to go out and find voices in the community that we're going to tell stories about their part of the community. So instead of me directing a movie about backyard fighting in, in West Perrine, we'd find somebody from West that, Perrine oh, to direct the nice. right? Yeah. You know? yeah. So in this case, we have a, a woman that we're working with who is directing, and she is pregnant, line producing, directing, doing wow. the interviews. She's extraordinary. She's killing it. I can't talk about the details of the specific project yet, but it's amazing. We can't wait to we're see doing nice. another project where, and this is kind of an interesting thing too, because you have these conversations in this industry, which I'm very happy to be living in a time where it's like, enough from white men. Can we hear from some other, <laughs> like enough from you, can we hear from some other voices, you know? And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, and I love it, because I'm tired. <laughs> and I like, and I'm like <laughs> if I can, if we built a thing where we can help younger filmmakers and other voices join the conversation, then hell yeah, I love it. And so, yeah. but but you have these conversations, you probably know what I'm talking about, where they're like, okay, well, this is a story about an inner city experience in Miami, a historical tale. And so let's start looking at people who can direct that. And of course, it's the black director conversation, um, right. which is essential and important. Right. But I keep thinking, I think it was when, when Fences came out, Denzel Washington was promoting that movie and he had a line where he said, it's not just color, it's culture. Yes, that interview was amazing. And it's right, it's, and it's experience. It's walking yes. a mile in someone else's shoes or mm-hmm. how, forget a mile, how about the person who lived their entire life in those shoes? And so I realized, I was like, listen, we don't just need a filmmaker of color. We need a filmmaker from Miami because right. being black in America is one thing. Being black in Miami is a whole different, <laughs> whole like different country. <laughs> thing. It's, well, listen, they say the great thing about Miami is it's so close to the United States, you know, and <laughs> but you know what? the unique, you know, we, we talk about the Roy and, and Dan and I talk about this all the time. Like the unique experience here is that, you know, we are a minority majority community. And that minority is not black, that minority, except in Miami Gardens, which is the, one of the only black run cities in the state of Florida. We are still very much the Jim Crow South. People don't think of Miami as being very cosmopolitan. It wasn't. It was the it's South. Still Florida. I mean, look right. where we are. I mean, yeah. Yeah. the yeah. further South. Yeah, we're closer to Cuba <laughs> yeah. than Chicago right now. All right. I mean, I, right, I think right. the election of 2020 kind of, you know, for it told a lot about about that demographic also. Yeah. Largest swing to Donald Trump than any county in the entire country. So, yes, the the cracks in our shameful history are beginning to show. Miami Beach was a sundown town. People of color were not allowed on Miami Beach after dark and not allowed physically on the beach uh, at all. There was a a black Mm, beach uh, in Virginia Key um, off of of city of Miami and Key Biscayne. But the reality is, is that the shameful history of American cities is that we treat African-Americans as second class citizens. Well, what happened in Miami is they became third class citizens. 
because as the Cuban Americans started to come here, build a power base in the private sector, then in the public sector, the Anglo Anglos, which we're probably the only city in America that calls our Caucasians Anglo, our population Anglos. But the the Anglos, in a funny way, became second class. And then it was Haitians were like fourth class citizens, like just the way they were treated. Like we didn't have underserved communities. We had unserved communities. I mean, we had we had entire neighborhoods that were just not neglected, ignored, like they did not exist, like their voices did not matter. There was zero representation. It was appalling. And Miami, when you when people think of rioting or, or civil rights uprising, people think of L.A., certainly Detroit, maybe Miami had not one, not two, but three incidents over the course of the 1980s where in which white and Hispanic police officers murdered unarmed black men were acquitted of it and the city burned. And the first one of those incidents was in 1980. Arthur McDuffie was a, a veteran insurance salesman. He was on a motorcycle. They wanted to pull him over for speeding. He gave chase for a couple blocks and they beat him to death at the side of the road before Christmas. And they covered it up and made it look like an accident. And Edna Buchanan, a reporter at the Miami Herald, got a tip and exposed the whole thing, blew it wide open. The officers were arrested. They had a change of venue to Tampa where an all-white, all-male jury acquitted them in a matter of hours. They were guilty of sin and guilty of attempting to cover it up as well. And that riot in April, in the spring of 1980, to this day, it caused, I think, about a billion dollars of damage. 18 lives were lost. It was one of the most damaging and deadliest riots in history. To this day, you can go to blocks in Liberty City, entire blocks that have never been redeveloped or never been rebuilt since that day, early 1980. So a lot of parts of this community were devastated. They're now being swiftly gentrified by their own representatives, by their their own, the people are supposed to be representing their best interests are being sold out. And that makes for a really, to me, a unique experience. And so I'm like, yes, I want a black director for this doc, but I want someone from Miami, most, most importantly, from Miami, because I think being black in Miami is a unique historical experience. It's amazing that you have the the awareness to even even know that, you know, because a lot of people are not necessarily aware to even say that, to say, no, I want a director from this demographic because they know the, the community better than anybody else. And I think that that, um, you know, I, I wish that we see that more in, in filmmaking, because even now you see a lot of um, directors who are telling stories of minorities that the director is not necessarily a minority, but they also don't even incorporate the the minority population in the filmmaking process, you know? So I think that that should be more done. I mean, done more often. Thank you. I mean, listen, I I don't know that I understood that 20 years ago, but that's why I said, like, I, I, I say, I'm like, I'm really like excited to live in this time, you know, when there is an awareness uh, yes. of this. Um, Absolutely. And, and we can do better. I, listen, we none of us get to pick our parents, right? I mean, we, nope. we wake up and we... Look around here. We, we, you got Yeah. You play the hand you're dealt. You're you know? here. You, yeah. You play the hand. And, and, and I didn't know when I was young that the world treated me differently because I was white and a male. And so I don't know how you can't grow up, especially in, in a place as crazy diverse as Miami is. And notice that, for example, I often say that there's a common misconception about Miami that we are a melting pot, a paella. We are not. 
We are we are <laughs> we are far more akin to a TV dinner where sometimes peas fall into the mashed potatoes. <laughs> I think I think I'm the only one who understood the paella reference. We sell we self segregate. We do. We build neighborhoods. We insulate ourselves with people who look like us, and we fly our flag. And yeah. like I said, it's Game of Thrones and paradise with iguanas instead of dragons. Like that's like that's <laughs> what it is. And so and and I noticed that. And I'm like, well, why is? And then you realize that oh, well, some of these neighborhoods. Don't get served the way other neighborhoods get. Right. get so, and then you notice, and you're just like, oh, Miami's economy is third worldian. The disparity between the haves and the have-nots is larger and getting wider faster than almost any city or county, major metropolitan area in the country. Almost sixty percent of Miami-Dade County residents cannot afford to live in Miami-Dade. Um, that is according to the Alice report from the United Way. Those are people with jobs, at least one job, probably two or three jobs. If you don't notice that, if you don't notice that, oh, it's all really nice over here and then it's not so nice. And why is yeah. that? Um, and you don't get curious about that and want to do something about that. And you're just not paying attention. I mean, you're just living with your head in the sand. Yeah. Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami is out now on Netflix. We have the great Billy Corbin yes. on here. Thank you so much for I was joining so us excited on Montgomery about this conversation. And Company. I am I'm fascinated. I can listen I, to you talk I all was day. So excited about Thank this you. one. I was like, yes, I want to talk about this one. Let's go. <laughs> this is definitely you. one of my favorite interviews. Yes. Uh, I will just say it right now. <laughs> Billy, thank you so much. Love your storytelling. Love it, love it, love it. And listen, Rackin' Tour, we have Think Tank Productions here. We need to link up in the future and tell some dope stories together. Let's do it. Can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up next, the family had a little chat about generational curses. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we know it's a generational thing with us because we talk about it. Our generational, I would say, hand-me-downs have been a blessing. Snook was educated, so then all three of us ended up being educated because that's just how our family went. But we also know that there's generational curses. And sometimes in the drug business, you get born into the life that you are living. I mean, that's what we saw with Cocaine Cowboys. A lot of the people actually are born into the lifestyle that they live. And a lot of people are asking the question because it came up recently about generational curses, breaking away from the family curses. But a lot of people say it so easily, but how do you break away from something you're born into? Very good question. Actually, the people who probably could answer this question the best is probably people who've been in the mob, who were born into it. But yeah, but I mean, is there a such thing as a real, because people are, there's there's a saying that generational curses are real. And then some people are like, nah, you just, it's it's almost the nature versus nurture 
concept in a sense of <sighs> do you have a choice on your own to break away from your family or is it you're a victim of your circumstances no matter what? I think it's the same old story, uh, nurture versus nature. Just like they talk about institutional people who have lived in projects, their great-grandmother lived in the project, their grandmother lived in a project. And so that's just a way of, of life. You don't know anything else. You know, that's one of the, I guess, one of the good things about education. It kind of broadens your outlook and that you see the whole world versus just that little piece of, of carbon print you're making in your particular neighborhood. So it's hard and it just depends on a lot of different things. They told this story in church about this lady and her family, her daughters, they always cook these roasts and they cook the roast and every year they cut the end off the roast to put it in the pan. And so one day, one of the great granddaughters said, why are we cutting this end off of this roast to put it in the pan? Why do we do that? You know, and the mother said, oh, it's your tradition. You know, my mother did it. Her mother did it. And that's why we do it. And so the great grandmother was sitting over there in the corner. She said, honey, I didn't know y'all was still doing that. We did that because we didn't have a pan big enough for the roast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you just do it. You do it. You don't even sometimes know why you do it. But it's just there and it's kind of bred into you. Right. Just because it's been done for so long. I kind of think it depends on the situation. Like mom said, it's nature versus nurture. But then the thing is, is that I think for different economic brackets, it's a different thing. So let's say that it's a generational curse. If I grew up in money because my family always got money illegally and then I say, you know what? I'm not going to do this. That means I have to give up a lifestyle that I've never known any other lifestyle, but I've always had bodyguards. I've always had, you know, a driver. I've always been able just to shop where I shop. So for some economic people, it, it's, it's a choice that it's either I'm going to choose to live a different lifestyle and have to figure it out myself or I'm going to have to live the lifestyle I know that I know I can maintain and that I know how to maintain. So that's the problem, for, I think, is just the economic part of it, because like you said, mom said that they just cut off because they didn't have a pan big enough. Wonder if you have 30 pans and they tell you now you got to use half a pan and you will have, you know, it's, it's a different type of living. So I, I, I think that some people can do it, but I think it's harder when you have money than when you don't have money. That's my personal thought to it. Here's the thing. We're starting to see it a lot more now with the younger generation because I think Gen Z, you know, they look at things a lot differently yeah. than we did. Gen Z doesn't care to call their parents something on the internet live and post it. And it doesn't matter about mm -hmm. generational whatever. It doesn't matter about... Your family for Gen Z could have been Republicans all the way through and through. And then you got a Gen Zer popping up that's like, yeah, nah, I'm with them <laughs> Dems. Like, you know, it ain't, that ain't it. And it's, so it's almost like generational curses, not necessarily a mentality, but it's something that Gen Z is completely breaking apart I from because I mean, that's I, not the same. I think, I think it's the, the same. same I mean, honestly, I've been seeing a lot of talk on this on social media too. Just people kind of playing with it, taking it lightly, like, oh, going to work, drinking water and breaking these generational curses, you know, at the same time or something. Yes. But I think that Renee's point is that like, I actually did meet somebody in class and she was like, oh yeah, um, you know, my family's very conservative. She, she was white and she was, my family's very conservative, but I'm voting liberal this year. And I was like, oh wow, that's a big thing for her. I'm like, Who's that paying was a that big bill? Thing for Who's paying that bill? 
who's paying? See, this is where I feel like no, but, it's but not just, the same. But, I mean, because it, 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 the reason why I say it's kind of the same is just because you're breaking a cycle. You know, I'm not saying that being a conservative or being a liberal is a curse or whatever, but I'm just saying it's just kind of breaking a cycle of what's been done. Also, this movie is really popular right now, Encanto, the Disney movie. It, I, I love, love it. it. Oh, I love it because yeah. it talks about generational <laughs> trauma. Like, you know, like, like it does. you know, it be, does. Well, I, I heard, um, what's her name, Jeannie Mai, talk about her mom one time that she was her and her mom had kind of like a tumultuous relationship and she said that she didn't really understand her mom and the trauma that she had been through as as to why she would act mean or something sometimes and so she said that once she understood that generational like trauma she was able to kind of break away from that and maybe not be bitter or maybe understand her mom a little bit more maybe even break that cycle of parenting for her kids that's, okay. that's why i'm saying there's a little bit of overlap I get it. I think that I am talking about something different. I'm glad that people are breaking out the norm and they're saying, oh, well, I'm not going to do what my parents did. And they're kind of like breaking that. And that's not a generational curse to me because that means they had an option. They had an opportunity. And to me, a generational curse is when you don't have that opportunity. It's no longer. No, you're onto something, Cole. I I think that I think that there's layers to it. I think that even to reference Cocaine Cowboys, some of them started the business when they were 10 years old. Like they started working in the family business, which so happened to be cocaine. But they started working in the family business at 10. There wasn't a lot of trauma to that family because for a while there, they operated peacefully as you could as a drug dealer, let's say. So I get what you're saying, Cole, in that point of a generational curse is almost circumstances that you can't get out. You don't really have a choice. That's what makes it a curse. But I also like the conversation of generational trauma because that's something that I don't necessarily know. I don't, it's hard for me to even understand or believe it that I know it is a thing because I'm one of those people that I really believe that I can determine my own circumstances to a certain extent. Like I'm, I'm somebody that like, I don't care about everything else going on around me. I control every single controllable. I can control the things that's outside of that controllable world. I don't even pay it no mind. Like it's not even a part of my thought process. But I do understand that that's almost a privilege as well because I'm able to be able to just choose the things that I can ignore and not ignore. So there's so much into that. But when you look at it, I mean, some people, their generational curse could be that you made a lot of money. And we know that money we want. Look, I'm a fan of all the money shows, billions, all of them. Like, yes, when you look at those type of shows, there's so much yeah. trauma. Yes, so absolutely. trauma Succession. doesn't only affect poverty. Yeah, succession. Trauma doesn't only affect just the poverty it, it is it, it Definitely. affects everyone look at everyone, the royals, but, look at the royals. Well, i don't know what yeah. And but that's what I'm saying. That that's why I said rich people too. I said if you grow up and you've never had to never go anywhere without a bodyguard, you've never yeah. driven, you've always just went and bought what you needed to buy, that generational curse is that in order for you to break away and say I'm no longer gonna do that, you have to almost give up everything. And can I live and survive? You know, right. And some people, you know, and I agree with you, it depends on the hand that life dealt you, basically. But some people like Renee, and I know that that is a school of thought that they really do believe that like free will, everything is a choice, you know, just because your parents were drug dealers doesn't mean that you got to be a drug dealer, too. You know, but it becomes very hard to your point, Cole, like if life just dealt you a, a very tough hand. You know, and let me just say before we wrap it up, we're talking about many of these people having a choice 
if you're in that kind of uh, lifestyle, that kind of family, you have no choice. You know, if, right. if, if you exactly. want to live, yeah. it, it's a life and death. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be poor. Right. I'm going to miss a few meals. Most you of know the time, too much. It, it's a life and death situation. You don't have, you know, it's sad that you're born into a situation that has like its hands around your neck at all times. And you can't, yeah. you can't really, you're not your own self. You're not your own person. You don't own your own person, in other words. Right. And I guess to your Renee's point, control your controllable. Some things are out of our control, but the things that we can control. Yeah, because if you know too much, it's out of your control. They're not going to let you just walk away. Yeah. You can't just walk away. <laughs> and that's the thing, even with the cocaine cowboys, it's so interesting to see, like, that's why it was so hard to break down that dynamic because you would have to mm -hmm. break down family. Like they were, the cops couldn't that. get anybody to talk for a long point. There was no progress because you would have to break down family. So this might sound terrible, but the best business to have is a family business because whether you're doing, honestly, whether you're doing you're dirt or you're doing something down. legal. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we <laughs> no, breaking no break down going on. Ain't no breaking yeah. the <laughs> Good luck, Chuck. If you think that y'all are going to break down this business and you're mm -hmm. going to go through Cole no. or you're going to go through Serena no. or you're mm -hmm. going to go through Snook to do it. Like I would sit like, and this is hypothetically, I would sit in a police station hypothetically and laugh out loud if the cops told me something because I would be like, oh wait, you said Serena said that? <laughs> or and you I said like, Cole what? said that? <laughs> Cole said that? Like, what did nah. she say again? Tell me exactly right. what Cole said again. Oh, okay. <laughs> and wait, now you told me Snookabooka said what now? You mean my snooker book has said that the same one that already told me we got to go to jail together if we go to jail That's because right. she got to go to protect me that snooker book. So to that defense of, you know, the cocaine cowboys, they were running an illegal business and there was a lot of bloodshed. But one thing that I always, you know, I noticed is that family, they going to go through it with you, but they going to. They gonna go hard for you, and that's the one thing of why I love to keep it in a family here at Montgomery and Company because I feel protected, I feel safe, and that's usually what a family unit does. So what I took from today's show is that it kind of doesn't matter what your location is, where you're from, what your background is. There's so many ways that we're similar. And even when it comes to family, we talked about generational curses. We talked about generational wealth, but we all have seen different things and we all have overcome different things. So my thought would be leaving this conversation with Billy Corbin and even seeing what's going on in sports create your own destiny. I know sometimes your circumstances may not feel like it allows you to do that, but you start every day by creating a routine and working towards a goal and getting yourself there. So you may be a part of a generational curse, but you also can be the person that breaks that generational curse. That's all we got for today, baby. I'm going to see y'all next week. Montgomery and Company. It's a generational thing. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com